0: Fast and Powerful Relief is just a quick trip away. Find Claritin D at the pharmacy counter. Ask for Claritin D at your local pharmacy counter. You don't even need a prescription. Go to Claritin.com right now for a discount so you can live Claritin clear. Use as directed.
1: Greetings, adventurers. Today we're excited to introduce you to a new story, Dark Dice, a horror podcast that blurs the line between actual play and audio drama, where the story is determined by the role of the dice. Soren Arkwright let loose an arrow that cracked the glass, passing through the spine of the creature. The shambler still managed to maintain its forward momentum, but stumbled as it ah. eagerly tried to bite and swipe at Soren, landing near his feet. As Jeff Goldblum has now joined our cast, Dark Dice is available. However, you listen to podcasts,
2: spanning the nerd world and feeding your fandom. Crash
1: from
0: comics to video games, from the cinematic universe
1: to television. This is Earth. In the industry, something out there had discovered
0: it's time for the down and nerdy
1: podcast. Here's your host, James Witham.
0: Never setting any limits on the nerdy stuff that you love. It's episode 226 of the down and nerdy podcast. I'm James Witham, really excited this week to talk to one of my favorite writers. Philip Kennedy Johnson, got a chance to chat with him at San Diego Comic-Con this past year about his new book, Low Road West, which sounds really, really great. But you know I'm going to be talking to him about Last Sons of America and a lot of his other great stories that I've reviewed on the show in in the past. So I was really psyched to actually get a chance to talk to him because I love his work also plenty more stuff to talk about gonna get my spoiler filled review of the death of superman movie coming up some uh, movie news and nerd news as well that's gonna be very very interesting that i want to talk about but you know speaking of comics we're getting to that next it's what we're reading on the down and nerdy podcast this is Matt Kent, and you're listening to the Down and Nerdy podcast. Time to drag out the old long box. Also, fire up the tablets and the laptop, whatever you're reading on. It's time for one more reading, and the team behind Grass Kings from Boom Studios is at it, at it again with something new. It's Black Badge Number One from Boom Studios, of course written by the great Matt Kent. Also great is Tyler Jenkins on the art, and equally great Hillary Jenkins on the colors. Now, in case you're not familiar with Black Badge, it actually follows a group of scouts, and I use that term loosely, actually, who are part of a secret division known as Black Badge. Now, the first story really seems to focus on Willie, who's kind of the new guy, and he's not really sure, and you know, this group's been together, so you know what it's like to be the new guy in a very tight-knit group. Now, he's a very accomplished scout, but he really has no idea what he's getting into, and nobody's going to tell him what he's getting into either. Of course, you know, when you're talking about secret organizations, you know, the 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 team that's going to be the, the the core team kind of keeps things close to the vest. And the team doesn't really embrace him in this issue very much. Now, they do go on an assignment to a very dangerous place. Now, that's all I'm going to say. When you see it, you'll understand exactly what I'm talking about. Now, what the, what's funny is is their attitude and and kind of them knowing who they are as a group and what they're there to accomplish is really interesting. It, it, it's it's just how they approach these missions in knowing almost like they have a blank check for mayhem, I guess is the best way I could put it, but not really as cavalier as all that. There's a there's a level of professionalism there, which I think is really, really interesting, even in that they, they're not even really sure what they're doing. They're just there to get the job done and get out sort of thing. So it's just... It's very interesting to watch kids, and I say kids, I mean, maybe you could classify them as young adults. Some of them don't look old enough to be young adults, but it's it's their mindset in all of this is very interesting. But then the group dynamic, you, you add someone who hasn't been there and doesn't really know what's going on, and that shakes things up a bit. And that's one of the things that kind of interests me going forward in this book is that how is this particular member of the team going to affect the core group and maybe get them to look at what they're doing a little bit. So I thought that that was an interesting dynamic that got thrown in there. We did get to know the team quite a bit, but they're a very quiet bunch, so we don't really get a whole lot. And they all get picked on, which should be no surprise because some kids can be jerks, let's just face it, and you're always going to have those, that one or two, that like to pick on basically everybody, and that's exactly what happens with each member of the group. But what's funny is one of the thing is some of the things that they get picked on for are, are part of what their jobs are with the black, with black badge, but nobody knows the black badge exists. And that's just the thing. So I thought that was an interesting level to put on it. And and just the, to me, what struck me the most was the, was the attitude of these kids and how they are very focused on their job and how they work as a team. And then, You throw a new member into a team. It was almost like, remember in Shawshank Redemption, when Andy Dufresne shows up in the prison, there's already a core group there, right? So he kind of tries to befriend himself to Red, and that's kind of how everything gets started, right? And he sort of proves himself with the group. We're still waiting for that moment where Willie is going to prove himself. To the group, and that's going to be another thing going forward that will be very, very interesting. When I tell you that Tyler Jenkins is working on art for a book, you should already know the level that you're going to be getting. Especially if you've read Grass Kings, which was fantastic. These this guy gets nom this these books get nominated for Eisner Awards for a reason, and I just really, really love Tyler Jenkins' style and Hillary Jenkins again doing a fantastic job on the colors here, and I think the colors in this book. Going to make a huge, huge difference, just much like they did in Grass Kings, too, by the way. It was a very underrated part of that book were, were the colors for Grass Kings, and I thought that Hillary Jenkins knocked it out of the park, going to be doing that here as well. This book is a pull for me just because of the intrigue level that we, that I've got going on here for this book, and exactly who's giving the orders, and what are the end results of these missions? Are we going to find out the end results? Do we want to know the end results? So, my level of intrigue, not just about the story, but about the characters themselves, couldn't be piqued more. So, I'm looking forward to see what else we can get from Black Badge and Boom Studios. We saw a first look at the women of the new Terminator movie last week, so let's talk about... Some Terminator comics this week. That's right. The Terminator Sector War number 1 from Dark Horse Comics, written by Brian Wood, Jeff Stokely on the art, Triana Farrell on the colors, Nate Picos of Blambot on the letters, and a great cover by Robert Samlin. Now, the story centers are around an NYPD officer named Lucy Castro. Now, she's definitely part of the overworked and underappreciated crowd. We find that really, really early on, but, you know, When you really when you're in a big city like New York and there's just not enough cops to go around, right? That that should be kinda commonplace. But it seems like she's, you know, getting the short end of things even a little bit worse here now. You know how it is at the end of the day. Sometimes you just want to go home, go to bed, you know, put a lousy day behind you. That's not gonna be happening for her. I mean, well, not just for the reasons that we're gonna get to, but also simple kind of life gets in the way sort of reasons because she's getting a call from her own house um, from the cops themselves so she as a cop now has to go to something deal with something in her own house and that's kind of where it all starts now I know I usually do these spoiler free and I'm going to continue to do that but this is a little bit of a spoiler just in case you haven't read the description of the book or anything like that I don't want to catch you by surprise here I mean it is on the cover so this shouldn't be a huge news but There is a Terminator after her, and she doesn't know why. Now, it turns out there was someone else that the Terminator Terminator was after as well, and there was a good reason for it too. Again, not spoiling these things for you. We get to actually see some pretty intense action in this book, and Lucy just trying to make sense of what's going on as well in between that. And actually, there's a particular moment in the book where you think she's going to be able to rest for like 10 seconds, right? And that is clearly not the case. So I like that fact. I like that I was almost out of breath for her reading this book, and this is just the beginning of the story, mind you. This is the first issue. So imagine where this is gonna go from here. If we're already at this level and she's already, you know starting to really kind of come to grips with what she's dealing with, even though it's really hard to understand because there's something going on somewhere else as well that's all over the news. That's also a part of the story, but it's just, if, if things are this bad and this chaotic for her now, imagine where this is going to be later on. Now, if you want to read an issue where absolutely nothing goes right for the main character, nothing goes their way. This is kind of it. I mean, I mean, not just, not just action wise, but there, there is a couple of really big things in her life that she now has to deal with On top of the Terminator factor. So, I mean, it's just like, what else could possibly go wrong? You don't want to say that and jinx it. But that's kind of where Lucy Castro is right now. Now, the art and the action sequences of this book was very, very good. And I loved the rough look on the Terminator. Even though it was in human form, there was a nice rough look to it. Very scattered look. I thought that that was a really good choice by Jeff Stokely there on the art. And, you know, some of the questions get answered right away in this first issue, which I love, but there's also plenty to keep you interested in moving forward, not just the action itself, but where her story is going to go now because of the revelations that we get in this this book. So, you know, some number one issues, they're very vague, and that's a good thing. You don't want to give away too much, but this book gives you something in the first issue. And I think that that's something that a lot of books don't do that should, is is it gives you a little bit of something and it's like, oh, okay, so at least now I know this and this is going on. So let's find out what's going on with this, this, and this now. So I thought that that was a great tactic by Brian Wood and company as well. I didn't expect to love this book as much as I did, but I really, really did. So Terminator Sector Wars, number one from Dark Horse. Another pull for me. What can I say? I've been on a roll lately. I've been picking some good books to talk about on the show. That's going to do it for what we're reading up next. This week in Geek Tame It, finally time for my spoiler-filled review of the Death of Superman movie from Warner Brothers Home Entertainment and DC Animation is next on the Down and Nerdy Podcast.
1: This is Julie Nathanson from Far Cry 5, and you're listening to the Down and Nerdy Podcast.
0: Pretty sure I said it last week, one of the most, if not the most iconic story in comic book history is out now on Blu-ray and Ultra HD and any sort of HD you could possibly imagine. That's right. Death of Superman and my spoiler filled review this week. So yep, if you haven't seen Death of Superman yet, plenty of spoilers ahead. So you might want to skip ahead to the nerd news segment. Otherwise, I mean, it's going to get spoiled for you. Not that you don't already kind of know what happens because they're in the title, first of all, Death of Superman. But, you know, the biggest question when I was sitting in the press room at San Diego Comic-Con this past year, one of the biggest questions that almost was asked of almost everybody that sat down was, okay, why Death of Superman again? And there was a variety of answers, but one, one that stood out to me was was that, okay, we're going to tell this story from a different angle. We're going to tell it from more of an emotional angle and we're going to deal with Superman having to deal with the fact that he is Superman and carrying that burden and having trying to have a relationship with Lois and keeping that from her and the burden that that again lays on him and, and that's really the personal relationships of Clark Kent and Superman were definitely at the forefront of this story and that was basically... The vast majority of this movie was on an emotional level, and for me especially, the relationship between Clark and Lois was really, really fantastic here. Because you now, I'm, I'm going to say this, and and do not do not jump down my throat for this, but I think Rebecca Romaine, at least in animation sense, might have given the strongest Lois Lane performance ever. Now, I know that there's been some great Lois Lanes, not taking anything away from Margot Kidder. I said animation version of Lois Lane because, I mean, you want to talk about a strong woman. She portrays that absolutely 100%. She takes nothing from anybody. She stands on her own two feet. And I love that about her. She certainly, this might be the most edge of a Lois Lane. That I've seen in animation as well. I mean, she really, really has an edge to her, and she's very much not a damsel in distress at all. But at the same time, there's an emotional level to her as well, and that you know Clark's the one person that kind of makes her drop that guard a little bit. That kind of that kind of takes a little bit of that edge off, and and she wants to be in a relationship with Clark Kent, but the, you know he keeps kind of pushing away for reasons that, yeah, she finds out a little bit later on in the movie. But, you know, it's it's funny how it's almost like, not to get too sappy on you here, but it almost shows you how love can kind of tear down the toughest exterior, right? You know, we all just want to be loved. And I'm not just, you know, I'm not going to, you know, we're not going to start holding hands and have a love fest here or anything like that. What I'm saying is, is that you're seeing a relationship between two people, where both people feel like they're trying but in in different instances and you know that there's a connection there and when the, I love the scene where he finally tells her that he's superman and she laughs at him and then he says look at me and it just hits her like a ton of bricks and all of the stuff just starts falling out of her mouth these these just you know right off the top of your head emotions are coming right to the surface and I'm watching this and I'm thinking this is a brilliant way to portray this because how would you react if somebody told you the person that you love the most told you something similar in that situation and then to top it all off off he goes to battle doomsday right after that happens by the way so I I mean and then of course you know how that ends so, I mean, just think of that linear progression of how that really goes down. And I thought that that was brilliant by everybody involved. And now I also want to move on and talk about the Justice League a bit because, you know, Justice League, not really a part of the comics that are for Death of Superman, except for, of course, the the Funeral for a Friend sort of thing. So... It was true that every Justice League member kind of got theirs, right? Everybody got their little piece of the action. Everybody got their moment. Although, you know, it was kind of fleeting because Doomsday just wrecks almost everybody in this movie. But I'll get to that in a second. But one of the things that I was worried about with this, and I talked to the producers about this as well, if you heard our interviews, was that okay, you see Batman, you see Flash, you see Wonder Woman in the cast, and you're thinking, okay, you know how much of this is going to be a part of the story? They really weren't, and that is that was absolutely true. Yes, there were relationships that were established with Superman and each member of the Justice League or the League as a whole, so you get that impact when the death actually happens, and, and it makes it meaningful, especially with Wonder Woman. They do address... Their relationship as well, Superman and Wonder Woman's relationship, does get addressed in this movie. They don't shy away from it, and that was for sure correct in this. And that mattered quite a few times in this, actually. So they were not a huge part of this story. They were kind of there. Now, who I thought was a little bit more of a part of the story than I expected was Lex Luthor. And Rain Wilson, by the way, does a fantastic job as Lex Luthor, it it adds a little bit more of a creepy factor for some reason to the character. And Lex, of course, sees the whole doomsday thing as an opportunity. And it's very much Lex being Lex in this. You know, he's supposed to be under house arrest and he's not. He tries to steal the glory at Superman's funeral. You know, all of the stuff that makes you love and hate Lex Luthor all at the same time. And there's some stuff in the end credit scenes there too, as well, that might have a little bit of a rebirth vibe, or even a late new 52 vibe from Lex Luthor, where, where we kind of see something being worked on, and is it for Lex, what we'll have to find out in Rand of the Superman coming up next year. But just something that he add to this that I thought was was extra, extra interesting, and that you know, Lex kind of is showing that, even though he's evil as hell. He wants the spotlight. He wants to be the hero too. He thought he was supposed to be the one that was going to save the day. And Doomsday, of course, did not allow that to happen at all. So his role in this, which, which was very much increased, I think also actually added something to this story. Now, you want to talk about the vast majority of the movie being about the relationships. Yes, it was. But let me tell you something. What we got was a fight of epic proportions at the end of this movie. They did not skimp on the fighting at all. You had great action from from the Justice League characters, you know, starting with Hawkman and working your way down. And then you also had that standoff between Doomsday and Wonder Woman. Was great. Absolutely great. But you see each Justice League member almost one by one, cannot handle doomsday and then here comes superman and it is on and you see in these moments that superman can't help but help the innocent even though he is facing something that you see the blood and he realizes that this is more serious than any fight he's ever been in you see that look in his eye and yet he still can't help himself he has to stop to help civilians to help the kids and i'm not saying he shouldn't but that says a lot, and it should. And, and again, I thought that built even more of an emotional level. Whereas that, you know, well, you know, he's going to die when you're watching this as a comic book fan, and now you're seeing all of the things that won't be done, or at least not be done the way that Superman would do them, because he's not going to be there anymore. And so, in seeing that, that added even more of a layer to this if you ask me, but they did not skimp on this fight at all. And Jay Castorina, who was a part of putting that together, deserves a ton of credit for his work on that fight. He, he kind of, you know, very, very modestly said, oh yeah, I've worked on some fight stuff before. Yeah, well, this one really, really was at the top of the list. They, there was nothing held back in this fight. The end moment where both Superman and Doomsday kind of kill each other, I thought was done very, very extremely well. So I don't think that they left anything on the table with that. And then you get to see the reactions after that. I thought it was brilliantly done. I teared up a little bit, even though I knew exactly what was happening. So, And I also want to give a shout out to Phil Barassa, too, because the design of Doomsday... We get to see a lot of Doomsday in the containment suit, which I thought was really, really cool. And then slowly and progressively throughout the fight, it's almost like you're peeling layers. And then you finally get that full Doomsday reveal towards the end of the battle. And we get to see, you know, the spikes start to grow, right, as he takes damage and stuff like that. So I thought a very, very true adaptation of Doomsday as well. And that was one of the things that I asked Phil in the press room at San Diego Comic-Con was about designing doomsday and and I thought that he did a fantastic job with that. I mean overall man, you want to talk about a risk of doing something that's been done and something we've seen recently be done. This was a little bit of a risk but a one that I think pays off tremendously because they told it a different way. You gave me a different version of a story that I've seen before, and you made it more impactful. And I think that there's absolutely something to be said for that. You didn't fall into the trap of making the Justice League over-involved. You made them just involved enough. The relationship between Lois Lane and Clark Kent being front and center I thought was amazing. Great performances, by the way, by Jerry O'Connell and Rebecca Romaine I mean, others in the cast did very good as well. But those two especially, I also like the relationship between Lois and Cat Grant throughout this as well as Lois actually has somebody that she can talk to about all of these things that she's dealing with that is going to treat her almost like an equal, right? Like someone that's not going to see her as having a weakness, but someone that's seeing her as as just a woman, who is a strong woman who just wants to have everything in her life going right, and if that makes sense. Because I'm not a woman, so I can't really speak to this exactly, but that's the way it seemed to me. It was like a woman that you know is not having another woman talk down to her or judge her, but can be on her level and understand what she's going through and be that person that Lois needed in that moment I thought was really, really important. So if I'm going to give this a rating, I'm going to have to give this eight tattered capes flying out of 10 and you know exactly what i'm talking about because it's right there on the cover like one of again those most iconic scenes that you will remember forever as a comic book fan again i thought was done very very well that's going to do it for my spoiler filled review of death of superman from warner brothers entertainment home entertainment and dc animation available right now as a matter of fact on blu-ray Digital HD, 4K Ultra HD, all that stuff. Get it at your favorite retailer now. Up next, some nerd news to deal with. Let's dive in on the Down and Nerdy Podcast.
1: Contained herein are the heresies of Radolf Burntwine, erstwhile monk turned traveling medical investigator. Join me as I uncover the blasphemous truth of a plague-ridden world that ours is not a loving God. And we, are not its favored children. The heresies of Radolf Buntwine. coming January 2nd, wherever podcasts are available. Hi, this is writer Mike Johnson, and you are listening to the Down and Nerdy
0: Podcast. Check the start date because we're returning to a galaxy we thought was gone possibly forever. It's time for nerd news. The reason I say that is that it was announced and confirmed by Jean Luc Picard himself, Patrick Stewart at a Star Trek convention in Las Vegas that he will be returning to the iconic role of Jean-Luc Picard for a CBS All Access Star Trek series. Now, this will not be a reboot, according to The Hollywood Reporter of The Next Generation. It's actually going to focus on the next chapter of Picard's life. Now, Alex Kurtzman, who is the new showrunner Discovery is on the creative team along with some others. Now, CBS. there's also been multiple reports that CBS wants a Star Trek show to be running pretty much all the time. When one ends, they want another one to be able to pick up. And I think we did the story a few weeks ago about how there was as many as seven shows in development. Looks like this might be one of them. There's no real details that have been released about this. Not really surprising. I'm sure it's still very, very new, very fresh. But from my perspective, I remember saying that it would be great to see a show that was just based at Starfleet Academy, right? That, that is the wheelhouse that I think needs to be hit in some of these new shows. And what if this show is exactly that? What if this new chapter in Picard's life is to become more of the teacher, more of the mentor in a more constant way? What if this is his chance to be Professor X as Jean-Luc Picard and not necessarily have a school for the gifted, but have a school for the next generation of Starfleet to pass on his knowledge. To pass on what he would know. I would watch the hell out of that. I'm going to be completely honest. I think that that would be an amazing idea for a series. And and it's not going to be boring. I know maybe you're thinking, yeah, you just based it at Starfleet. How much fun could that be? A lot of fun. It's not like you have to stay there the entire time either. I mean, you can branch out in certain instances, I'm sure, but... I mean, think about it, Jean-Luc Picard being responsible for the next generation of Starfleet. I mean, there's puns all over there, but think about that for a second. Would you not watch that? I am just so excited to have Patrick Stewart back in the Star Trek world again. We have casting news for Batwoman, finally, and I got to tell you, this could be about as perfect as you can get right here. Ruby Rose is going to be playing Kate Kane, of course, we know as the alter ego, of Batwoman. Now, Rose identifies herself as gender fluid, so that fits within the LGBTQ realm. You've seen her on Orange is the New Black. She was in John Wick 2. Actually had a pretty pretty big throwdown with Keanu Reeves in that movie, if I remember correctly. She's also going to be coming up in The Mag. Now, I mean, if you closed your eyes and pictured what a live-action Batwoman would look like, do you not see Ruby Rose when I saw, and now I will be the first to admit, I wasn't completely familiar with the name when I heard it right away. And then when I saw her, I was like, oh yeah, her. So when when I, when I saw her and I connected the dots, I'm like, man, what a perfect casting. You certainly get somebody that knows about the LGBTQ community. So they, you've got that. And you've also got, I mean, she just looks so, like such a badass. And when you could see her in that costume, in that suit as Batwoman, I think it's going to be so epic. It's going to be one of those things like, like I remember when I saw the Black Canary suit for the first time on Juliana Harkivay, I was like, yes, this is absolutely perfect. I think I'm going to have the same exact reaction for this as well. And you know that there's already the Batwoman solo series that's being developed right now it's being written written by caroline drives by the way of vampire diaries but we will see her for the first time in the upcoming dc tv crossover that's going to be in december so i don't know if we'll actually see her suited up for that we haven't heard any confirmation on that or anything i can assume we probably will but we don't want to assume anything at this point do we because you know the in the real world costumes that we've seen in the Arrowverse, we might not see exactly what we expect from the comics. Will we see the iconic bat symbol? That is going to be the one for me. Are are they going to actually have the bat symbol on there? Can they have the bat symbol on there? And would you be upset if they didn't have the bat symbol on there? Honestly, as long as Ruby Rose knocks this out of the park, they can go with whatever look that they want. As long as it's close enough I'll be happy. I'm not going to get bent out of shape over little things as long as she brings what needs to be brought to the role. That's what really matters most to me. And and I think that she definitely has a very good shot with that. And and very much in casting her, I think that they want to be as true to the spirit of the character as they can with her background. And I think that this was a brilliant move and I hope it works out as well as I think it's going to. There's been a ton of movie news going to stay in the D.C. realm. As a matter of fact, as we found out this week that Black Mask is going to be the villain of the Birds of Prey movie, according to The rap. Now, this movie will also feature Black Canary, Huntress, Renee Montoya, and a young Cassandra Cain. Now, we know that Harley Quinn's going to be in there in some capacity as well, and we might have her Gotham City Sirens group possibly involved in this. Now, before I even get to the elephant in the room here about the Birds of Prey, Let's just talk about Black Mask for a second. I mean, you know how brutal Black Mask is. I mean, especially as a gangster, you know, he's the head of the False Face Society in the comics. Now, what, what I'm wondering is, is that does this set a very dark and serious tone for this movie? Because, you know, I mean, you've got Black Canary and you've got Huntress anyway, so that's going to make it serious. And, of course, Cassandra Kane not exactly a not serious character either. So I guess I, I, I get this. It's not like we didn't know that that might be the tone they were going for anyway, but you have black mask in here and that really sets it off to another level. Now I have to talk about this beyond this casting news is that we know the Batgirl's not supposed to be in this movie. This needs to be addressed in the movie as to why. And I understand maybe you're using Cassandra Kane as the, you know, she's going to be the Batgirl replacement in this. And I just don't know, though. You kind of have to have Barbara Gordon in a Birds of Prey movie, don't you? Either as Oracle or as Batgirl. I'm actually fine either way if that's what they want to do. And I'm not even saying that that's not what they're going to do. The only thing we know is that Batgirl will not be in this movie. They've been kind of very close to the vest as details as to whether or not we might see Oracle. I haven't seen anything saying we won't see Oracle, but if we're not going to see Batgirl, or at least Barbara Gordon, that's something that needs to be addressed and we need to know why. Even if it's going to be quickly in the movie, if you just address it and move on, I'm fine with it. Give me a good reason that she's not in this, and I could be okay, because I love the other characters as well, so it wouldn't derail it for me, as long as you give me a reason why. But you bring Black Mask into this, you have your legit, serious villain that we were probably never going to see on screen in a Batman movie anyway, so why not do this now? And you never know, you get the right casting and a good story for Black Mask, and maybe this is a character they're going to want to show us. Again, and I think that that's why you do this in a Birds of Prey movie you know you kind of dip your toe in the water a little bit see what the interest is in the character and how the character is portrayed and then you go from there and if and if it's no harm no foul if this is a one-off villain you know you just move on from it but if the character sort of catches popularity maybe you do a little bit more this is a character that's certainly been plenty popular and another female hero getting her own lead movie and this time According to Deadline, it is Supergirl who is going to be having her own movie and Oren Uziel is going to be writing. Sorry Oren if I butchered your name, it's kind of what I do on this show. We have no producer attached to this yet. I will get to that in a second, but Uziel has a very interesting resume. Working, worked on 22 Jump Street, Cloverfield Paradox, and currently in production on Sonic the Hedgehog. Those are just the few that popped into my head as I was as I was reading his kind of resume. Now, I know maybe you're looking at some of those titles and you're thinking, "Oh, I don't know. Some of those weren't very good and I'm not sure exactly what kind of, you know, what they're kind of going for there. What they might be going for is we might see a lighter tone. Again, not the Cloverfield Paradox was a laugh riot of a movie. It was certainly different. But then you got you look at 22 Jump Street and Sonic the Hedgehog and you're thinking, "Okay, so you've got a lighter tone there, and then you've got the the action, I guess you could put that in air quotes maybe, of Cloverfield Paradox. But the thing that does that that does give me a little bit of pause here is that, you know, the movies that I've seen him attached to weren't exactly very well received, whether by fans or by critics or both. So that always makes me a little bit nervous going into a project like this. But then you find out the news that that's being reported by multiple outlets that James Gunn's being eyed by Warner Brothers after being fired as Guardians of the Galaxy 3 director. Now, there's no producer or director attached to this yet, just Uzziel working on the script, not exactly named director yet. So, I'm not saying that this is the project, but it just seems very convenient that we get this announcement this week. And then we get the announcement of, or at least the rumor, that James Gunn might be headed to Warner Brothers. It just seems very convenient to me, the timing of these two events. Now, we could also see a Supergirl movie sort of lighten up the tone of Superman. And, you know, Henry Cavill had, has been getting rave reviews for the new Mission Impossible movie. And, and rightfully so, from what I've heard. I haven't actually had a chance to see the movie yet, but I heard he was great in it. And it's almost like, okay, so he's great in that. Why can't they seem to get Superman right? Although I still I still liked Man of Steel. I don't care what anybody says. I was a fan of Man of Steel. I actually thought that he did do a good job in that movie. So I'm not necessarily speaking for myself here, but if you're looking to lighten up the Superman character or make him more of a mentor and, and prop him up a little bit, you know, maybe if you make him a small part of this Supergirl movie, You could do that, but I don't think a Supergirl movie needs Superman to succeed. The Supergirl show has shown us that, you know, in spades over these past few seasons that, you know, it was nice to see Superman, but he's not necessarily needed in the show for it to work. And speaking of that, can we not do the whole Melissa Benoist should be Supergirl in the movie as well? I love Melissa. I think she does a great job as Kara and as Supergirl, but that's not going to happen. We are not going to see her as Supergirl on the big screen. We've seen these things split up before. It's going to happen again. They are going to recast this role. And you know what? That is fine by me because then there's no expectations of what this movie is going to be going in. Let the worlds live separately. There's absolutely nothing wrong with that. Finally, we've got the Oscars doing something a little bit different and might actually help see more movies you actually recognize at the Oscars. According to The Hollywood Reporter, the Academy Board of Directors has proved an outstanding achievement in popular film category. Now, the specifics on the qualifications for that aren't really known yet, but the prevailing wisdom here is that this is going to open the door for comic book movies and action movies and just movies that basically we like in general, getting more Oscar love a little bit. But, I mean, the ratings of the show have been down steadily over the years. This, they're, I'm sure they're trying to gain more interest here. But here's a couple of things. First of all, again, we don't know what the qualifications are here. I mean, what makes it a popular film? Is it box office numbers? Is it trending? What makes this popular? And who makes the determination as to what popular exactly is? And the other thing I wonder here is that, does this actually hurt the cause more than it helps the cause? Because, I mean, obviously, you know, we think certain movies are good. The Academy doesn't necessarily agree. You know, Wonder Woman's a perfect example of, of a movie that probably should have gotten some Oscar love in some capacity and really didn't. So here's the deal. I mean, winning an art direction Oscar or, or something like that is is great, but you know, you want the movies that we love to be recognized more or do we, does it even matter if they're recognized or not? Do we need that kind of validation for the movies that we love? Personally, I don't really, I really don't. It would be nice to see at some point, but I don't need an Oscar win or a nomination to say, okay, you know, this legitimizes nerd culture in the world of popular film and and in with critics and the Hollywood and in the Academy. I don't need that. What I do worry about though is that this actually hurts the cause more than it actually helps the cause because now that the Oscars has this category, they're like, well, you know, you don't have to whine and cry about Black Panther not being nominated for best picture anymore because you know, there, there's an outstanding achievement in popular film category now. We'll just make sure that Marvel and DC and everybody else gets their nominations in there. I'm not saying that Black Panther won't be nominated for Best Picture. It might, and it, and it would deservedly so be nominated. There are 10 nominations for that now, and I wouldn't be surprised if that movie gets one of them, or, or in our other comic book movies for that matter. But what I'm saying is, is that this now justifies the Academy not putting movies that we tend to go see in the best picture category or best actors, best actress, and so on and so forth. It justifies that because they're giving us our own world to live in now in the world of the Academy Awards. So we don't need to worry about that. We don't need to worry about ever getting the recognition of the big one. It's almost like having a consolation bracket. It's like the bronze medal game in the Olympics, right? In any Olympic sport, where you have the gold medal match, loser gets the silver, the, win, the winner gets the gold. Then you have the bronze medal match of the, well, at least they got something. This feels like the bronze medal match of the Academy Awards, and I'm not sure how I feel about that yet. Maybe I should lighten up and say, well, at least it's something. At least they're paying attention. At least they want to do something. We don't even know what the threshold is here yet. Popular films is a wide, wide net to cast. So who knows what that can entail at the end of the day. That's going to do it for nerd news. Up next, going to go back to the floor at San Diego Comic-Con from 2018 when I had a chance to chat with Philip Kennedy Johnson, one of my favorite writers, hopefully one of yours as well. We'll talk to him about his new book, Low Road West, and more next on the Down and Nerdy Podcast.
1: This is writer Dennis Hopeless, and you're listening to the Down and Nerdy Podcast.
0: San Diego Comic-Con 2018 couldn't start a better way as far as I'm concerned. I mean, you've heard me review this guy's books, what, a thousand times? Last Sons of America, Warlords of Appalachia. He's got something new coming out as well. We'll talk about that in a second. It's Philip Kennedy Johnson. What's up, buddy? Hey, man. Good to meet you finally. Yeah, good to meet you too finally. Now, I mean, it seems like with each one of your books, the intensity seems to ramp up. Bit by bit. So, after an all-out war in Warlords of Appalachia, you said that Low Road West, which is your new book, raises stakes even more. So do you have to ask yourself, where do I go from here, and how is that even possible, man? Yeah, we'll have to see. We'll see how this one goes. Maybe we can keep
2: this one going for a few more arcs, and we'll see what the next thing is. But for now, yeah, this takes place, I mean, at the end of a war like the one in Warlords in which the East Coast is actually getting bombed out, like it's uh, become, like, like a straight-up war zone, and refugees are being sent west to escape, you know, all the hardships.
0: Now, what I loved about both Last Sons of America and Warlords of Appalachia is that the stories had kind of like a point-of-note return moment, like a catalyst at certain points, so if Low Road West has a familiar element, will there be one in there as well? Oh, yeah. I think that happens around page three.
2: So we don't have to wait nearly as long then? No, no, it happens right out of the gate. Like this is the thing that, ha- yeah, there's a thing that happens where it completely changes the game. These kids understand that their whole life has changed and what the hell are we going to do now? Like or what's the rest of our life going to look like or do we even get to have one? It happens right out of the gate and then you see how
0: things escalate. I feel like we had to wait to what, like page 20 in Warlords of Appalachia before yeah. that happened? Now you're going page three? Exactly, that's exactly. Nice, nice, I love it. Now we know that Low Road West is a story about five teenage refugees. And you haven't been uh, too shy about tackling issues like, you know, a Second Civil War and Warlords in Appalachia, so can we expect a similar story with this and how refugees are maybe seen now, maybe kind of going on what's going on in society now?
2: Yes, definitely. Like, I mean, for the last couple of years, refugees have been something that's been on my mind a lot. And, um, you know, as with, you know, much of the country, it's a, it's, a, it's a big thing, no matter which side of it you stand, the refugee crisis is a big deal. Um, and I kind of wanted to see... I wanted a story in which the refugees are Americans, and it... I mean, that ties into one of my earliest exposure to fantasy literature, which is The Lion the Wish in the Wardrobe, and those kids, some, I mean, we might forget, are actually refugees themselves. Right. Um, they're escaping, now, they're refugees from London during the, the bombings by Germany, and they get sent out to the English countryside to escape the violence. And, uh, I mean, the very first iteration of Low, what would become Low Road West was kind of a reimagining of Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe set in the American Dust Bowl. Like, that was the kind of beginning of this whole thing. That made sense to me partly because of my, my love for Lion, the Wish and the Wardrobe, for, you know, the Narnia Chronicles in general. Um, also because of the refugee crisis happening now, it seems, you know, I wanted to see a story like that set now where the refugees are American, they're, you know, where we can see a refugee story where the refugees are our own children and uh, also the I've always kind of been fascinated with the Dust Bowl like back the time period in American history and also the area that region back when it was just this desert it kind of came out of nowhere and all the the way I envision it in my mind and all the photos that I've seen it just seemed so like it's such a striking haunting image you know like this purgatory right in the middle of the United States where the whole region was just w- wiped off the map you know and it seemed, like a really, it seemed like a really great environment to tell a story like this where these kids have lost literally everything and everyone in war and they, they're all dealing with death and loss and have to figure out what their life is going to look like now and they're in this desolate place trying to figure out what to do next. Totally.
0: Now, we've seen some supernatural elements creep into some of your stories. Of course, you've been working on the Dark Crystals books as well for Boom, but you've, you've kind of said that Low Road West will have some sci-fi elements as well. So were you inspired by any stories in sci-fi in particular when you were writing Low Road
2: West? Um, well, honestly, the I mean, yeah, as far as sci-fi, I guess I would say Stranger Things. Um, that, I mean, That's the, kind of the vibe I was getting. Yeah, too. I was hoping you'd uh, say Yeah, that. the the biggest Yeah, ele- the biggest inspiration for the story remains the Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe. And anyone with even a passing knowledge of that book understands where things might go. Right. Um, but on top of that, like as the as the story kind of evolved while I was you know working with editors and just just writing and rewriting, it started to take on more influences of. J.J. Uh, Abrams and Darren Lindelof's show, Lost. and uh, nice. And also, of course, Stranger Things. Uh, the fact that we're dealing with you know a cast of kids and seeing how they all deal with things. Yeah. Um, but yeah, also the mystery box element of Lost is a huge part of the story as well. Like, you get dropped in this place, and it is not at all what you expect. And right off the bat, these crazy things happen, and they're like, what is this place? Pretty much like the beginning of Lost, they're like, how could... I mean, this, things here don't make sense. How could this be happening? I mean, they're all kids that are dealing with death and loss and they're not equipped to do that. They're just you know normal American kids that got stuck in this position and uh, all coping with death and then they find this place where death, like the rules of life and death, kind of don't work the way they, they do other places, and death maybe doesn't exist here, and they,
0: it changes everything dramatically. That's, that's really interesting, actually. I think that's a pretty cool angle. Now we're also talking about a post-apocalyptic world here, and, and that's hard enough, but we're also dealing with teenagers, like you were saying, so it's just as difficult for them to get along with each other as it is to actually deal with the world around them?
2: Yeah, totally. I mean, they've all lost their families. They all have, they came from their own scene, and now they're with these other kids that they don't know, they don't necessarily like. and cases blatantly do not like but they've got no one else you know so over time you know hopefully the hope is that they will come together and kind of form a new you know a new family just because they're they're the ones that that are there with the pre-san
0: diego comic-con announcements we actually got to see a couple pages from the book already and flaviano's art being brought to life so what was it like working with him on the story oh man that dude was like I'm
2: writing this, like, literally for him, like, it's his, his, his art. He has this way of putting such, like, personality in their, in their facial expressions and their body language and body carriage. Like, you can just tell who these kids are without even reading the dialogue. Like, I, I mean, a goal that I set for myself in this book was to write the kids so distinctly that if you just saw the word balloons alone with no art, you'd be able to tell who was speaking. And Flaviano was coming at it from the exact inverse of that, where you can tell what the kids are saying and thinking without the word balloons. Like their his ex, his work is so expressive, there's so much personality in all the characters. He has his way of making his, makes kids look cool, you know. Like they just look, they just you can. T- I just I could geek out all day about his work, man. It's, it's awesome. I mean, he sold me on his environments. Like when I was first looking at his work, I'm like, oh, dude. The environments that he drew for this look so great. But then when he started drawing the characters, I'm like, yeah, there's
0: simply, there's no one else. Do kind of environments get lost in the shuffle when you're doing any book? Because it's so often, you know, the focus is on the characters. But I feel like environments are almost just as important, maybe especially in a story like this. Totally. It's, I mean, yeah, I uh,
2: I try not to let the environments fall to the wayside in my books. But I, I know there are books in which that does happen. But I, it's really important to me, you know, like when... when uh. <laughs> Funny story about that. When we were first doing Warlords of Appalachia was Jonas Scharf, who is, I mean, who has gone on to prove himself a, you know, force of nature. That guy's killing it on the art right now. Doing Bone Parish right now. looks amazing. Um, he is. He's Germany. He lives in Germany. And when he first started doing the the scenes in uh, Warlords of Appalachia. The trees made me think more of, you know, Europe than than Kentucky, where I grew up. Like, in, and we, we went into a lot of detail about the environments, like, making sure that they look like they should, you know. It's, it was a big deal. It was a big, big deal. And here, it's even more so. Like, it's this town, this town called Duster's Wake, where a lot of the story takes place. And um, it's... Such a distinct place, and I, it was really important to both of us that that be true. So we, we put a lot of love into that town, making it look the way it should, and and also the other crazy environments that we see later, which I will not go into great, you know, without spoiling right, everything. All right. But yeah, he's uh, Flaviano's all over. Okay. All right, man, before I let
0: you go, I mean, like me, you have a four-year-old son at home, and how much does he really inspire you creatively, and is there a story in particular that he would be super excited to have you tell at some point? Oh, man.
2: I'm actually making a, it's funny you say that, I'm writing a kid's book for him right now called The Moon Dragon. And uh, it's kind of grown out of a story that I've, I kind of improvised, you know, to him in a bedtime. I would, I would read him this, I would kind of just make up this story about a dragon that lived in a moon. And the little boy that lost his family, had to get his moon dragon to help him find him again. And um, that's the story that he likes me to read to him now. And um, as far as my other work, um, man, I don't know. Like, I, there's a lot of... My love for him and our relationship is a big part of a lot of my work. It's, uh, it's center stage in Warlords of Appalachia for sure, for an Aquaman story I did with DC Comics. Um, there's uh, There are elements of, of our relationship in this book as well. Yeah, there's a there's a lot of my son in a lot of my work, and I,
0: I hope he can see my love for him in it when he gets older. It definitely shows through in a lot of your works. As a matter of fact, make sure you're getting Low Road West, which, correct me if I'm wrong, Philip, is going to be available in September, so make sure you're getting on your local comic shops about that. So it is September, right?
2: It is. September 12th it hits.
0: I mean, if you don't want to wait, you can always get the trade paperbacks of Last Sons of America, maybe Warlords Lords of Appalachia. There's a lot of good stuff from this guy. It's Philip Kennedy Jones. Thanks for taking time at San Diego Comic-Con. It's a pleasure, brother. Thanks so much. If it's possible, after talking to Philip Kennedy Johnson at San Diego Comic-Con, I'm even more ready for Low Road West now. I mean, I was psyched for it before, but now I'm really, really ready for it now, especially some of the off-mic conversation that I had with him. Yeah, I, I have to have this series now. So if you feel the same way, Final Order Cutoff, by the way, is August the 20th. So make sure you're telling your local comic book shop, I want Low Road West number one and the rest of the issues as well you're gonna love it you might as well go ahead and tell them to put it in your poll box for the entire series from boom studios also make sure you're getting warlords of appalachia last sons of america wire as well already out in trade matter of fact put the links up at down and if you want to buy them from amazon and comiXology will help you out with that that's going to do it for this week's edition of the Down and Nerdy Podcast. Again, thanks to Boom Studios and Philip Kennedy Johnson for letting me chat at San Diego Comic-Con this past year. There's plenty of other interviews that you could check out as well, and you could find past reviews of the books that I was talking about at downandnerdypodcast.com if you want to listen to past shows. Also, follow us on social media, facebook.com slash downandnerdy and at downandnerdy757 on Twitter and on Instagram as well. Remember one thing. You never have to apologize for being a nerd. So let your fan flag fly and be good to your fellow nerds.
1: Hey there, this is Justin Bartha. I made a funny new podcast, King of the Egg Cream. It has the greatest cast in the history of podcasts with actors like Louis Black. I'm torn by my feelings for two women. Bobby Cannavale. You can eat it, or if someone hits you, you can put it on your cut.